How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy, you go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Eric Trexler back on the show. We initially dig into a bit of a life update on him. Those who follow Eric might have noticed that he's quote unquote gone back to school. He's researching again. So we dig into that and uh, how that's gone for him so far and what we might be able to look forward to in terms of that research that he's doing as people that are interested in the, the lab that he's joined. Then we dig into a question of rep ranges for hypertrophy. You know, there's a wide range of rep ranges that can produce hypertrophy. Should we be using the span of rep ranges or should we maybe focus on a particular rep range? And what's Eric's perspectives and views in terms of the stimulus to fatigue trade-off of low reps versus high reps? Really, really good discussion and some practical application for all you guys who are training or coaches yourselves. Then we dig into the topic of deloads, the way that Eric likes to deload, whether or not he deloads at all. Maybe he has transitional weeks. We talk about that a little bit and what you might be able to do there and why you might use one versus the other. And then we dig into a bit of Eric's perspectives on the literature that's coming out pertaining to muscle hypertrophy and the effects of range of motion. Has he started using kind of long muscle length partials or is he kind of a, a team full ROM advocate for life? This is something that we dig into. So guys, enjoy the chat. Before we get into that, as a reminder, here at Revive Stronger, we're online coaches. That is what we do. We coach people, whether or not that's kind of to the bodybuilding stage or bikini stage, however you wanna go, or a photo shoot, or maybe you just wanna really gain a serious amount of muscle mass or get into the best shape of your life and just lose some body fat to feel better. This is all things that we do. We help people get to their best body composition and feel better. And we are really, really proud of our individualized and very personalized coaching here at Revive Stronger. So if you're interested in learning more about that and how we work and how we keep it personal, then definitely check out the link in the description that goes over our online coaching. But without further ado, let's get into the chat with Eric. Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Eric Trexler on the show, back on the show. Hasn't been that long, Eric, uh, but things have changed for you in terms of kind of life circumstances. Uh, I think some people will be aware that you've kind of uh, had a change of direction in life. Uh, other people won't. Um, that might sound like a bigger of a deal than it is or isn't, <laughs> depending on what you think is a big deal. Uh, but yeah, let's let's get a bit of a, an update on you, Eric. And uh, thank you again for being here. I know it's uh, an early morning for you. Yeah, no, happy to be here. Thanks for having me back on. Um, yeah, so I mean, the, the, big, uh, the big change is that I basically got back into the research game. I had been for years, um, you know, working in the fitness industry and doing a little bit of research here and there, but it was usually just a project here, a project there, collaborating with folks. Um, but I've kind of rearranged all the different stuff I do uh, throughout the day and the week and the month. And so right now, uh, basically I've got two main priorities that I'm working on. I've got the mass research review, which of course still doing every month, still doing just as much as I've ever done with it. Uh, but the other thing is I accepted a research position at Duke University, um, which is 
just phenomenal. Like I, I've been so happy about it. Um, it was one of those things where the opportunity was just, it was just incredible, you know? Um, so I'm working in Herman Ponser's lab. And so, yeah, he's, uh, a lot of folks will know him from the book Burn that he wrote a couple years ago. And so our lab is equipped to study the regulation of energy expenditure in the most nuanced ways possible, right? So we have a 24 hour metabolic chamber where, I mean, we can, it's like a small apartment where we measure all the air going in and out of the room. Uh, so, I mean, we can get every element of energy expenditure instead of just saying, well, why don't you lay down on a table for 30 minutes? We'll get your resting expenditure and then just hope it tells us about the other stuff, right? So we've got a, a full metabolic chamber that's set up like a little apartment or dorm room. We're also equipped to do doubly labeled water studies. And it's something that I'd never done prior to getting to Duke. Uh, but doubly labeled water, we can basically have you ingest a special form of water that has slightly different, um, you know, molecular weight to it. And we can actually use a, a kind of laser based analyzer to look at in your urine, how quickly that was cleared from your system. And so we can basically measure your daily total energy expenditure as you're just going about your business, right? So over a span of about a week, we take repeated urine samples. And I mean, that's just incredible, right? Because we can have you drink this water, which looks and tastes exactly like normal water, measure a few urine samples, and we can get your energy expenditure when you're actually doing the things you do throughout a normal day. Because even with the metabolic chamber, it's like, well, yeah, we can look at you for 24 hours straight, but like you normally don't live in a tiny box, right? Yeah. So you're probably going to move less when you're in a little tiny box. And we can put, you know, a treadmill or a bicycle in there when you're in the little tiny box, but it's still not how you live, right? So, um, so yeah, it's been really cool because I'm, I'm doing that in Herman's lab. Um, and, you know, we're just equipped to answer so many interesting questions about how and why energy expenditure changes. And so that lab's actually, you know, all the degrees I've done up to this point are like exercise, nutrition type departments. This is the Department of Evolutionary Anthropology. Uh, so we are basically trying to understand how humans work the way humans work. Uh, and people in my department, a lot of them are, I mean, there's some folks who are like pure paleontologists who study fossil records. There are folks who study strictly non-human primates like lemurs and bonobos. So uh, it, it's just been incredible. And then the other half of my time is totally different. So I'm in, uh, it's called the Religion and Social Change Laboratory. And so I'm actually working part with like folks who study evolution and part with folks who study the interaction between religion, sociology and health. And so we're doing like really comprehensive uh, studies about kind of like a holistic look at health, which includes psychological stuff, uh, stress management, sleep patterns, exercise, nutrition, and even elements of, you know, how spirituality or religion kind of influences uh, different health related behaviors. So yeah, I mean, like I said, the opportunity was just incredible because I spent so much time studying energy expenditure, but with this one super limited tool where I could basically get your resting energy expenditure and then try to use intuition and equations to figure out the rest. Um, 
so so it's just been fantastic and like I live near Duke University. I didn't have to move to a different house. Like I didn't have to uproot my family or anything. The campus is beautiful. We just got ranked number seven in the country for for the top universities. Uh, so yeah, it, it's just been wild and I'm having a lot of fun with it. I'm really glad to hear that it's, yeah, it's such a cool opportunity and a really positive experience so far as well. It just, I guess it, I don't know, when was the last time you were in school? How many years has it been since you've been like actually in school and researching, if I can call it school? <laughs> yeah. So luckily they don't make me take any classes. So I'm not like in a degree program. Um, I'm just doing research. It's just, yeah. you know, a research job, which is great. I'm, I don't have any teaching responsibilities. I like teaching, but I find ways to do that through writing and podcasts and stuff like that so yeah it's just a, a straight up research job but it's been a while man it's been um probably i finished my phd in december of 2018 so it's been about five years or so since i was you know going to a lab every day and uh and yeah i think it hit me yesterday or i guess no it's five in the morning so two days ago uh it really hit me because i had one of the it was my first like really long day of just collecting a ton of urine and i was like <laughs> it, it was one of those things where i was like i'm really back in the game here you know because it's it's one thing to be tapping away at revisions of you know peer-reviewed papers or doing statistical analysis but when you've got the gloves and the lab coat on you start to realize like wow i'm, I'm really back doing it and yeah it's 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 like riding a bike you know it's been five years but once you're back into it you, you kind of fall right back into the swing of things and it's it's been fun that's good. Yeah, I, from my understanding with a lot of researchers and people kind of like doing the do as you are and kind of giving us that information that we then like digest and absorb to be better in whatever we can in life through that scientific field. It isn't like a like if you wanted to earn as much money as possible, it's not really the route you would go down. Like it, it's quite a like a lot of the reward that you're getting from it sounds like it's like uh the I, I don't know the term for it but it's not like a financial reward it's more just you feel like you're actually getting something out of life and giving back and that sort of thing right yeah i mean it's um there's something about universities that just draws me in um yeah it's it's definitely not like the most financially rewarding thing you could do uh in terms of compensation but um there's something very special about being on a campus and knowing that everyone's there to answer big questions and to kind of uh explore topics that that really require a unique environment to be able to explore them effectively like there there's something that's intellectually really stimulating and exciting about that and to be around students and researchers you can when you walk on campus, like, first of all, it's beautiful. I mean, uh, they have like a Gothic architecture style. So you, you feel like you're just like in a series of castles, which is just gorgeous, but there's a palpable energy on the campus. Um, especially at campuses that do a lot of really high level research. So like, I've been really lucky. Like I grew up in Ohio. In, in the state. So I just went to a school in Ohio for college because I, I didn't even at, when I made that decision, I didn't care about research. I was like, oh, I'll go go to college, uh, find something that makes sense, get a job and that'll be it. Um, and then I got really lucky, went to UNC, which is a, a really good research institution. Um, you know, UNC is like a 
top 25-ish school in the country here, one of the top public universities that we have. And uh, and then now being at Duke, it's it's still, you just feel this energy of knowing people around here are doing big things, answering big questions. And there's this sense of energy and ambition and intellectual curiosity that just kind of radiates from the campus. So yeah, it, you don't get into it because you're gonna like get rich quick from it, but uh, it's just so rewarding to uh, the environment itself. It, it's it's really a privilege to be there and to interact with the folks on campus. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can totally appreciate that. I think just as a like anyone can appreciate going into like a gym that just has a certain energy. A lot of the listeners obviously pivotal training so you, you kind of get that and it kind of you feed off it or even uh, you've done seminars before like when you're kind of surrounded by like-minded individuals and everyone's just like they're trying to achieve the same sort of thing and have similar goals like it's just something else so to be able to have that for yourself I can imagine is like uh, priceless in a sense um, yeah. have you got anything that you're researching or have planned to research that you can kind of share and that you're excited about well you know so I, I started uh, a couple months ago and research is fantastic, but research goes slow, right? Yeah. You, you spend, you know, there's the, the kind of life cycle of a typical study is you think of an idea, you agonize over it for a very long time, you write a protocol to get funding, it takes forever to get reviewed, you get funding, you write your ethical approval, it takes forever, you get that, you run the study, it takes forever, <laughs> you write it up, and then like, you know, two years down the line, now you have some some data to talk about. Um, so fortunately, I, I, I've got a cool like series of projects, some things I kind of jumped into midstream um, and and other stuff that's kind of in the planning process right now. I don't have any exciting data yet, but uh, I'm already collecting some data on, you know, en energy expenditure and athletes. Um, I have a a review paper that I'll be writing that I think will be really, uh, really exciting for folks in our space about energy expenditure and athletic populations. Um, you know, I've, I've got a couple, I, when, when I was doing my PhD, I did a little bit of like epidemiology type research where I would take survey data, um, you know, pretty big, uh, data sets from survey data and do some analyses. Uh, there's a few research questions that I'm interested in answering. I'll probably do a few epidemiology projects this year, which should be able to get out uh, relatively quickly, but that's still kind of in the hypothesis generating stage. So if you want to do epidemiology well, and hopefully folks do, you don't just kind of dive into the data set and poke around because that that's how we get a lot of really unreliable findings because the data is all there like the the surveys have been done i could download it today off the internet but uh what you really want to do is think through the question very seriously formulate hypotheses and more specifically in epidemiology we often use uh what we call dags dag uh, directed acyclic graph where instead of just saying, ah, I think there might be a relationship here, you actually plot out the directionality of the relationship between variables, right? So you'd say, well, I think this causes this, which causes this, but I also think that, uh, you know, age might impact that relationship. And I also think I need to control for smoking status and uh, alcohol intake, right? So you start to draw out, not just like a, 
you know, throw a bunch of variables in the mix, but you start to draw out how you expect them to interact. And then your analysis will reflect some of those uh, kind of some of those assumptions that you commit to on the front end. And, and they're assumptions that are driven by theory and previous data. And I know that's kind of a long winded way to describe it, but it is critically important because with big data sets, you will find statistically significant everything. You know, like, I mean, the the effect size required to get a low p-value when you have 10,000 participants is minuscule. And sometimes it can just happen by chance. So it's really important with uh, with epidemiology that you call your shots and you say, I'm not just going to randomly look for low p-values in here. I'm going to actually decide based on theory and prior data what I expect these relationships to be then you do your analysis. So uh, I've got a few things that I think will be really relevant to folks in our space, but I just don't have any data yet, or I don't have the analysis of the data yet to really share that. But um, I, I definitely, within the next year, I'm going to have some fun stuff. Uh, and, and uh, you know, in, unless I implode our friendship on this call, maybe I'll come back in a little <laughs> bit and, and provide updates. No, absolutely. Uh, I can't see that happening. And yeah, that sounds exciting. And it makes sense that, yeah, you have to be careful with, oh, like, I don't know, the thing I always think of is like, hey, science is great, but you can use any study to prove any point. It's like, yeah, there's you have to be careful with science and like think of the bigger pictures and like the, the intertwinings of everything. So that that makes loads of sense. And um, if we can dig into the first question or is there anything else update wise you want to kind of let the listeners know about? No, folks are fully updated. That's cool. it. Yeah, I imagine that's taking a lot of time and I can't imagine maths is like not a time investment as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the the days are long, but they're fun. Like um, I write in mass, I get to write about topics that I think are absolutely fantastic. And I think to kind of put a bow on this part of the conversation, I'm sure people are just bored out of their minds at this point. <laughs> the thing that's great is a lot of folks have asked me why I didn't start a lab right after I finished my PhD. Like, why did you go into this fitness stuff? And this is going to sound like a fake answer from like a job interview, but I was too interested in too many topics. And I felt like for me to start a lab, you kind of get into this rhythm where you think you have to have this ultra narrow scope, right? So like you talk to researchers and a lot of times say, Hey, what do you, what do you study for a living? And they'll say, I study, this one component of this one specific receptor specifically as it pertains to this outcome, right? Like it's these ultra narrow focuses when you start a lab. And I was like, I don't think I'm cut out for that. Like I want to talk about sleep and stress management and nutrition and train. Like I had too many diverse interests and I wanted to do a little bit of all of it. And I felt like, you know, being in the fitness industry is, I mean, the ultimate way to do that. Cause I mean, Steve, you know, working with clients, you can't just ignore all the other stuff. You have to address it. Right. Um, and that's why this, this opportunity at Duke has just been so incredible is because between the two labs I'm working on, I get to do the fun, like metabolic adaptation, exercise, energy compensation stuff that is nitty gritty physiology and theory. But I also get to do this very applied holistic stuff where 
as a researcher in this new area I'm getting into, I can't ignore sleep. I can't ignore stress. I can't, you know, I have to take this really comprehensive approach. So it's really nice where whether I'm doing mass or I'm doing my new line of research I'm getting into, I feel like I'm finally in a spot where it makes sense for me, where I say, yes, I know what I ought to be studying. And I have like this really clear sense of direction of where this research is building. So yeah, between the two things, I, I have a lot of work, but I'm like a pig in the mud, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, like you said, fitness is such a broad, all-encompassing thing. Like you can dive into one area and spend like, I don't know, it's any specific area, stress, sleep, like all of them, like you mentioned, like you can, to be an expert in that one thing, yeah, you don't have the time to be an expert in everything else. So you, if you don't want to miss out on that, I can totally see where you're coming from in that regard. Uh, and that's what makes yeah. this podcast exciting because I get to like dig into various experts' minds into certain subjects, uh, which is what we're going to do now. So uh, the question uh, that I have, first of all, for you is that uh, I'm just going to read it off because this is the one I provided for you. It's fair to say there is a wide range of reps that can promote hypertrophy. Most talk about like a five, maybe up to 30 or five to 20 plus. Not to say that less than five doesn't produce hypertrophy. It's just maybe inefficient. Uh, most people tend to be in a consensus for that. I'm not sure if you are, uh, but there is a different fatigue costs associated with um, higher and lower reps, or at least that's what people uh, often associate is maybe the lower reps lead to more kind of joint and connected tissue fatigue, the higher reps. People talk about there's just this uh, higher fatigue cost of those higher reps. Maybe some people have talked about like calcium, iron accumulation, things of this nature. Uh, do you feel like there is a better rep range to land within? What is your, if you're coaching someone for hypertrophy, is there like a, a rep range that you like to focus on for that goal? Yeah. So if I'm coaching someone for hypertrophy um, and we're just trying to be efficient, make the most of our time, um, you know, take the easiest path to the goal, easy in quotes. I mean, we got to put the work in, but you know what I mean? Uh, I do favor, you know, what used to be called the kind of hypertrophy rep range. And then people said, well, you can grow with a lot of different, but you know, I try to keep things usually between six and 15 for most of our training volume. And even that's kind of the, the broad range. Most of it is going to be in that eight to 12 range. And I definitely understand where folks are coming from. I mean, I've done powerlifting training where it's a lot of sets, heavy loads, low repetitions. And there's a certain type of fatigue a certain cost that goes with that, right? You, you, you kind of touched on it when you're doing the really high load, low repetition stuff. A lot of times your joints can feel beat up. Uh, sometimes to keep up with what's in the spreadsheet, you have to get kind of psychologically amped up. And I think a lot of people really underestimate the fatigue cost of the repeated, I need to get amped up to do a triple with this super heavy weight. I think that is such an overlooked element of the fatigue we experience during uh, a training program. So there's the joint stuff, there's the kind of psychological part, and then there's just the staleness of saying, you know what, I did 10 sets of three and I was in the gym forever, <laughs> right? And so over the course of eight weeks, that can add up as well. So those are unique fatigue costs with that type of training. On the other end of the spectrum, if you're doing the kind of high rep, um, you know, classically what would be kind of the hypertrophy to endurance type resistance training you know you'll see there the the uh studies where they're doing sets of 30 
uh, and they're growing just as well as the sets of eight to 12, as long as you're matching, you know, the appropriate uh, training variables. But when you're doing the really high rep stuff, there is the kind of increased metabolic cost. And a lot of times you'll see increase in, uh, you know, all of those metabolites like you touched on with, with that really metabolically demanding training. You'll all also tend to see increases in muscle damage in some cases. Um, I remember look, talking to a researcher at a conference who they were doing a 30 rep, you know, type of study, really high rep uh, to, uh, to promote hypertrophy. And they were doing bicep curls and someone got rhabdomyolysis and, and had to be admitted to the hospital. And it's like, dude, you got rhabdo doing bicep curls, like good grief. But, but it is, I mean, it is a really metabolically taxing thing that you can ramp up this muscle damage. And so what I try to do is strike a middle ground with my hypertrophy training where I say, okay, well, we don't need to do triples, but we also probably don't need to do sets of 30 where you, by, by the 22nd rep, you're like just wishing you were somewhere else in life. <laughs> Let's do eight to 12. And what we can do to circumvent some of that stuff with the metabolic cost and the muscle damage and things like that is we can just manage our proximity to failure very reasonably. So, you know, for, for some of these really taxing exercises, maybe we leave a rep or two or three in the tank. And so we can still have a very efficient training program where we're getting adequate volume, we're doing plenty of hard sets, um, but they're not so hard that we need to get psychologically really amped up for every set. And we're not you know, doing that type of training where you feel like you're gonna puke every time you put the bar down. So for me, that's kind of the sweet spot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I think at least the people I've spoken to and seen speak, speak about this, where it's not the hypertrophy rep range, but it's like we come back to it as like, hey, it's probably where most of us want to spend most of our training time because it seems to be the most efficient and effective for most goals. And it suits most lifts too. Like a triple doesn't suit like a lateral raise. Like you're not going to be doing yeah. that. But similarly, yeah. a 30 rep max on squats. I don't know how many people are doing that, but that's <laughs> that's uh, got high fatigue costs written all over it. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, that, that is a good point, though, is that, you know, you have to consider the exercise to exercise variation, right? Because like, you know, like, if you want to do sets of 30 on lateral raises to failure, go for it. Like, I, I, I don't know if I've ever left a rep in the tank on purpose on a lateral raise, right? Because you're like, what's the cost? You know, it's, it, it's usually not too terrible. Um, but for squats, you know, how how often do I truly leave zero reps in the tank? I mean, that's a rare occurrence, right? I mean, it, it's quite the event. You have to get mentally ready for that, and then you need to budget for that recovery because it's going to be uh, it's going to be tough. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And something that you talked about, I think, is interesting is that arousal kind of element because this is mm -hmm. something I've kind of battled with a little bit because I think when you come to use maybe reps in reserve and you are trying to maybe leave some more in the tank maybe early in a mesocycle after a deload or on certain lifts i do find if you don't get like and and if you're trying to not limit arousal even when you're trying to go closer to failure i just find this limited arousal uh, can sometimes leave people to not train truly hard enough kind of like hey if you train to three rar with an arousal element like with some aggression it's a different experience to just kind of being a bit mellow about it. I don't know if that makes sense or if you've got any thoughts surrounding that. It's it's tricky. I mean, like you said, it's, it's a very good uh, consideration to raise in this type of conversation because 
yes, you you kind of tap into that psychological arousal to derive those extra reps. And, and that's usually where we are really getting into the interesting part of counting. You know, that that's where those last few reps in reserve are, are pretty variable. Um, and, and so there, there's give and take there with uh, with arousal in the sense that there is a cost to it, but there's also uh, a benefit to it where at, at the simplest um, level, we can just say, well, if you're always getting amped up for every set, then we can have a little bit more faith in the consistency of your reps and reserve estimates, right? Um, so I don't know if I, I, I think one of the things you find with increased experience, increased years of training is that hopefully over time, you get better and better at making a very sober estimate of, okay, how much did I have left in the tank uh, without necessarily needing to push and push and push and push and get really amped up for it? Uh, I think with years that comes, it, I don't think it comes with weeks. You know, I, I think it takes a lot of time to develop that. But one of the things I found helpful kind of anecdotally for me is when I'm training, I feel like, you know, I've been lifting since I was 12, right? And so it's been two decades of lifting. I feel like I know what I've got, you know, when I'm when I'm getting close to the end of a set. And so what I've usually found is if I'm lifting in a very low arousal state and I basically do repetitions until I get to the point where I need to actually get amped up to get the next one in. Uh, a lot of times that puts me in a pretty appropriate RIR range. You know what I mean? So like if I just say, hey, I'm going to do reps until I feel like I need to actually like really turn on the extra gear, usually turning on that extra gear is what gets me that extra one or two or three reps. And so if if I'm kind of consistently saying, okay, that's what I've got until I really get amped up then that usually puts me in a rep range that's pretty consistent with training for hypertrophy or or strength. And then, of course, what I like to do with training is I, whether it's for me or my clients, I'll start a training block and we're going to have, you know, a lot of times three or four reps in reserve. And I think, Steve, we're probably very similar in that. I've seen some of your, your content on reps in reserve. Beginning of a training block, we're in the three to four range for a lot of exercises. And then as the, the training block goes on, three to four becomes two to three, becomes one to two. And sometimes we're actually pushing towards zero for certain exercises at the very end of a training block. And so what I find is like at the beginning of a training block, there's no need for any of that kind of psychological arousal. But then we start tapping into it as the block goes on. And uh, and yeah, so I, I kind of I think lifters often develop a sense for that as, as their training experience goes up. Yeah, I think you perfectly explained that where when you talked about it, like you you don't need that level of arousal and focus and almost like I talk about it as like a concentrated type of aggression until you're getting into that zone of like very challenging reps. So you might just scrape the surf of it, surface of it, like starting your meso, and then it's like each week you get deeper and deeper into that until the final week, like you said, when you need to hit that zero RAR under 
maybe something we're going to be talking about accumulated fatigue like you kind of have to get into that zone of like hey this is like i have to get amped up to be able to get these reps under these circumstances and to take it to like that like further condition because yeah if you just train mellow the whole way you listen to this podcast and you're like you're trying to take it to zero RAR, i'm just not sure i think you just leave too many reps on the table in that circumstance yeah, I, I think there's definitely a time and a place to tap into that, um, that kind of focused, semi-aggressive kind of state. And I think it actually works really well uh, in terms of the flow of a training block, where I think if you start tapping into that too early, you get into that situation. Steve, I don't know if you've had, I've had clients myself, I know, who um, will be two or three weeks into a training block. And every time they're like, hey, where's that next deload? And I'm like, we're kind of just getting rolling. Sure. And I think a lot of times what, what feeds into that, I don't think there's something that's super unique about this individual's physiology that's causing them to require super short training blocks before they're asking for the next deload. I think it's probably that the only way that they really know to train just based on their early experience in lifting is to tap into that stuff right off the right out of the gates right and so if you're if you're doing too much of that too early in the block i do think it it does have um uh some impact on how much uh fatigue you're perceiving i think it 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 works really well to start a block with very minimal uh arousal ramp that up over time and then by the end of the training block you say okay um i've been going to that well quite a bit now i've been tapping into that and I'm I'm kind of feeling some of that fatigue on a day-to-day basis and it's probably time to, you know, switch gears a little bit. Yeah. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Um the final question I had on this Eric was in regards to the rep ranges. Do you think there's anything uniquely beneficial to going higher or lower in reps? I know some people like to talk about hey, fast twitch muscle fibers are going to respond better to the low rep range, the high rep range maybe slower twitch muscle fibers. Is there anything to that or any other reasons that you think you'd want to kind of use the extreme ends of the range you know this um it's an interesting question it kind of reminds me of like you know we were talking about the hypertrophy rep range right and we said okay back in the day everyone said this is science it's the hypertrophy rep range and then we did the science and we said oh actually the hypertrophy rep range is a myth but then we all kind of gravitated back toward it anyway (laughs) so like we we became more correct like the hypertrophy rep range as a rule was incorrect but useful right um and so i think there's kind of a parallel thing going on where we're trying to figure out and i think it's worthwhile to explore are there unique elements of hypertrophy for low rep versus high rep training should we be including all of them to kind of hit different um you know different kind of types of hypertrophy almost I think it is interesting to study academically, but I do question the kind of practical utility of it. If I had to guess, you know, the the research I've seen so far seems pretty inconclusive about whether or not it's it actually is better to have this kind of diverse clustering of of rep ranges in your training versus just kind of doing what makes you grow and, and leaving it. Like, I don't know if triples and sets of 30 are, are the combination of the two is really getting you anywhere that sets of eight to 12 isn't getting you. I'm kind of skeptical about that. But even if we do, like, let's say we do find in the future, oh, yeah, you know, this high rep stuff is getting the fast twitch fibers, 
this low rep stuff is getting the slow twitch fibers. You know, even if we, um, I don't know if I mix that up, I might have, it's five in the morning, but you get the idea. You know, if we find that by using very, very different load and rep ranges, we're getting different type of, uh, you know, targeting preferentially different fiber types. I still think we're going to end up gravitating back toward the re- the kind of standard classical hypertrophy rep range. And, you know, we, we could kind of have that kind of nuanced academic understanding of what's going on. But I think we will kind of find our way back to that very efficient style of training where even if there were benefits of doing, you know, four triples and then two sets of 30, people are going to say, yeah, what if I just did four sets of eight or four sets of 10? You know, I, I, I've, I think it could be one of those areas where um, I'm skeptical that there is an advantage of, of having these like very polar differences in, in rep range. But even if there were, I, I still think uh, from a utility perspective, people are going to probably say, yeah, it's interesting, but marginal benefit at best and takes a lot of my time. I hate doing sets of three and I hate doing sets of 30. So now I hate all six of my sets <laughs> instead of just doing three things that, you know, three sets that are pretty comfortable. Yeah, I think that's that's fair enough. That makes sense. Uh, and actually, like, tangentially to that, in terms of um, like metabolites and like specifically training to sequester them in terms of, I don't know, uh, a superset that trains the same muscle group or even like utilizing things like BFR or short rest periods, is that something that you incorporate much and you see much value in? Um, it's a thing you could do. Um, you know, I, I don't do it a whole lot, um, but, you know, I, I could see certain situations. I mean, the kind of classic example where you're trying to really focus on that accumulation uh, would be, you know, if you're doing blood flow restricted training to train around an injury where it just wouldn't be a, a good idea to use really heavy loads. That's probably the most common use case. Or, you know, sometimes uh, I think it helps us justify doing low load training when, you know, if, if a client is just like, listen, I just don't have the heavy stuff in me right now. It's like, fine, let, let's go in there. Let's get a crazy pump. It'll be fun. You know, we'll accumulate all the, all the, um, all the metabolites and, you know, we know we'll be able to grow as long as we're training sufficiently hard, despite the fact that we're really switching gears and mixing things up. So I don't really go out of my way to say, Hey, there's this special element of hypertrophy that we need to seek by doing that type of training. But there is a time and a place where I could say, Oh yeah, that's an alternative that we could use and be every bit as successful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's like you said, even from like a mental standpoint, you maybe just get bored. You want some novelty and some change and you can spice stuff up and know you're still going to grow. And I think that's a very practical way to think about it at this point too. So that makes tons yeah. of sense. And uh, and I will say along those lines, this is probably a good segue for us, but um, switching gears is underrated in lifting. Um, novelty for the sake of just keeping things fun and interesting, I think is underrated. And sometimes I will have a client who says they need a deload. And I'm like, I don't know. I've been, I've been tracking your metrics. I don't think you physiologically need a deload. I think you're experiencing a little bit of staleness. You know, you've been doing the same workouts for a certain number of weeks and you're tired of it. And it's becoming monotonous and monotony can be very draining psychologically. And so sometimes instead of doing a deload, I really do more of just a transition week 
and it's like go into the gym and do something fun you don't have to make it you don't you don't have to hold back like you can go in and get a great workout i'm not telling you to drop you know uh your volume by 40 percent. i'm not telling you to leave at least six reps in the tank just go have fun but do something totally different than what we've been doing uh and sometimes just that little transition like one or two weeks of a little transition be like hey remember when you were 13 and you went to the gym just to have fun do that for a week like go have fun don't get yourself hurt and then we'll get back to to doing the the real business you know yeah, that is, uh, yeah, that's definitely a, a topic I wanted to touch on was that kind of deload thing. And, and that makes sense, actually, from a perspective of someone who, again, you're, it doesn't look like, I guess, that fitness fatigue paradigm where they're kind of going through their mesocycle and their, their fitness is improving, but now the fatigue is starting to mask that uh, fitness improvement and their performance is plateauing and dropping off. Is that a different situation to what you're describing? And would you do anything different in that sort of situation where they have got that high level of cumulative fatigue? Maybe they have some joint connective tissue issues they just feel like dead every single day yeah i think for me you know it, it really comes down to i try to be really intentional about if we're doing a deload if we're doing a transition week why are we doing it um because you know there's recently a study on deloads which are surprisingly few and far between and um you know the recent study that came out i know helms reviewed it in mass um it basically it didn't really find that deloads are like a total game changer but there were some caveats in the sense that it was a very short study so i think if you're going to ask where do you see the benefit of a deload if you expect it to be beneficial it's probably when you stretch it out over many months of training you know and, and you kind of have these opportunities to kind of switch gears and and recover and and you know then leverage that recovery into a productive training block you know so uh all sorts of caveats to throw in the mix but all of that is to say the reason i bring it up is i don't use deloads necessarily because there is kind of a human biological calendar where if you do exercises for four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks you are required as a rule to take a deload right like it, it's always like a case-by-case -case basis where you have to say well, if we're going to do something different than what we've been doing, we, we should have a reason like that. That's a good rule for basically any training decision. There should be a reason for why we're doing this. Right. So like, um, you know, you had mentioned like, hey, if we're, if we're going to do the really high rep, like accumulate fatigue, get a crazy pump stuff, even if we're just doing it for fun to switch things up, that's still a reason. Fun is a good reason to do stuff. You know, it's not always the best reason to do stuff, but it is a reason. But like, yeah, anytime we're going to do something different, we should have a justification for that. Um, and so if I'm interacting with a client every week uh, and, and I have a sense of how they're doing psychologically, physiologically, I can look at their training metrics. Sometimes I will have a client who I see indicators of psychological staleness, but not really a lot of like genuine fatigue. They're not really feeling beat up physically. If I see that, then we'll do, you know, one or two weeks of just like a little transition. And I'll say, hey, do some different stuff. If we've been doing a lot of heavy stuff, do light stuff. If we've been doing a lot of light stuff, do heavy stuff. Use totally different exercise variations. The one that you, any exercise that in the last few weeks you would say, oh, I wish that was in my program. Do that, right? 
let's go and psychologically switch things up, have some fun in the gym, kind of spice things up, reignite that passion. And then we'll get back into some of the more serious, very targeted programming after a week or two of that. But like you were alluding to, if I'm starting to see like, hey, I thought you were going to get eight reps and you got six, right? Or, you know, I thought you were going to get five and you got two. And it seems like, you know, maybe that shoulder thing is kind of bugging you or the elbow thing. When you start to see those types of things going on, then you say, okay, what we have here is more fatigue than staleness or boredom. And in that situation, I say, okay, I actually want to manage what we're doing here. And so I'm going to tell you what exercises to do and how many reps to leave in the tank. And that's where I would do more of a classic deload where there actually is an intentional emphasis on reducing the training load, right? So whether we're cutting volume or we're significantly dropping the intensity, um, a lot of times with with deloads, I I try to really trim the volume a lot. um, and, And I try to make sure that you know, we're being really, really efficient in the gym. So a lot of times I'll, I'll cut a lot of the accessory work, I'll drop sets, but I'll, I'll not drop setting, but I will reduce the number of sets being completed. Um, so yeah, th- those are two very, very different applications that on the surface, you might say, oh, deload week, transition week, same thing. Very, very different thing because they're done for totally different reasons. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, yeah, that makes so much sense. One's more of like a true physiological need the other one's more of just like a psychological like hey you just maybe one is more for that person that's i I don't want to say uh, i think it's not fair to put them in those camps i was going to say that more like gen pop person versus that like competitor that will do whatever like they're they're just grinding through the boring stuff uh quite often that that's not the way to separate it. it's more the physiological versus psychological need of uh, something being changed and i love that you mentioned that it needs to like a change needs to come from like a need not just changing it for the sake of changing it because i think that's part of what happened in that study when you kind of read through it the people that took the deload week were like hey we didn't need this deload like i didn't feel like i needed it i was happy training actually kind of sucked doing it that's kind of the interpretation i got from it at least Um, which reminded me of like the diet break study where they took a diet break after like hardly any time dieting it's like hey did we need you probably didn't need this there was no signs that showed that we need this you need to as you mentioned all the signs that lead up to these things that you could need yeah definitely and so no that makes uh so much sense in terms of uh, the different deloading strategies and i've heard people talk about 
um, not actually deloading and just having transitional weeks as like the way they do things or changing exercises is their deload strategy, which I think is interesting. Uh, but I think the, the key thing for me, and I think you're probably in agreement with this, is if you are deloading it is to reduce fatigue. And so you can't do too many things that could increase fatigue. So like a transitional week is still probably fatigue producing in a sense, whereas a deload is purposely, you're trying to kind of remove that accumulated fatigue and set yourself up for a number of weeks, months of productive training. Yeah. Yeah. And just to make things really applied, like, I think sometimes it's helpful to kind of, um, go through like little examples of like how I've done different strategies between training blocks. Like I had one client who was really serious. I mean, like not the type of, you know, a competitive client who wanted to do, you know, do their best and what they did competitively. Um, but what was interesting was they came to me after they had been doing CrossFit for a while. And they loved it, but they wanted to get into powerlifting. And so there were a lot of times where um, during our little transition weeks, I'd say, go do CrossFit for a week. You love it. You know, you think it's fun. You've been missing it a little bit. It's not, you don't want to like completely switch. Like you, there's a reason you switched from CrossFit to powerlifting, but you still like it. You still have fun with it. And so there were elements where when I started to notice some of that staleness coming on without really clear indicators of like genuine fatigue i'd say go do crossfit for a week you know we'll, we'll, we'll check back in and that went a really long way and that that's kind of my the one thing i would say to coaches is like never forget that you work in a service industry and so the more that your clients enjoy what they're doing and get the results they came for like you will be a better coach you when people will not let you leave. Like they will want to continue working with you if you're able to strike that balance because anyone can give them a reasonably effective program. But to really key into like, okay, what do you like? What what keeps you excited? That's where, where I think really good coaches separate themselves from the pack. Um, but another example I wanted to give is like that, that deload study is a great example. If we can continue training effectively, that seems nice, right? Like we, we don't necessarily want to force people into a deload just because we changed the page of the calendar. And so a lot of times what I'll do is like, let's say I've got someone who, like here's an example that I haven't mentioned yet, someone who is not really fatigued necessarily and they want to keep progressing. Like they, they're focused and they say, I want to keep doing what I've been doing generally, but like, man, that shoulder thing that's been going on for a while, it's starting to get angry at me, right? That's an example where sometimes instead of doing like a full transition week where we go from sets of five to sets of 30 and we're doing all sorts of, you know, supersetting and just go get a pump and have fun. Sometimes I'll say, okay, we can keep the same principles of our program, but let's change our exercise selection. Let's find slightly different variations of what we're doing that allow you to train without discomfort. And sometimes we can push right through that type of thing, switch up some joint angle, switch up some exercise selection. And after two or three weeks of that, go right back to our bread and butter and whatever joint was getting kind of angry is settled. And we still had two or three weeks of extremely productive training. You know, the, I, I, I think the biggest thing for me is convincing coaches that a deload is not kind of a, a dichotomous thing. It's not like, here is the single definition of what a deload is and you either do it or don't. I think what you have to do is assess the needs of the client and the wants of the client and say, okay, how do we use this week as effectively as we possibly can? 
and if psychological staleness right now is the main issue we're dealing with, then we need to maximize fun during that week. Uh, if the main issue is fatigue, we need to maximize recovery during that week. And if the main issue is just one particular joint that's a little bit angry, we may be having plenty of fun in the gym and we may be totally sufficiently recovered. We just need to move that joint in a slightly different way so we can keep progressing and then come back to that exercise later. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so well said. Managing the issue at hand, not just like using what's it called if every tool you have is a hammer. Uh, I forget every, the, 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 there's a saying there that I've completely Yeah. Everything uh, looks like wrong. a nail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the one. Uh, but yeah. So. Yeah. It, it, that's a perfect, uh, a perfect application of that saying though, because yeah, I think a lot of folks will say, oh, my client seems a little bored. Deload. Yeah. yeah. You know, my client seems fatigued. Deload. My client's knee is bothering them. Deload. And it's like, well, that's not actually, you know, that is a way to do it, but is that actually the best tool for the job? In many cases, the answer is no. And like, I do wonder over the course of years of training, if it does start to matter, if you're really effectively matching the tool to the job. Like if you look back and say, how many weeks over the last three years did I just kind of punt and just say, ah, whatever, you know, we'll do something different. And and that's not to say we always need to be doing the hardest thing possible because like one example of a deload-ish strategy that I've used, it, it kind of goes along with the psychological thing. I think I'm a lot more eager than most coaches um, when someone's like going on vacation or something. I say, dude, just have fun. Don't, don't, you don't need to go get a week-long gym membership unless it's fun for you. Um, like I'm much more eager uh, or willing to just say, yeah, and people would be like, okay, I'm going to bring bands and do this body weight exercise. And then I'm going to run for some reason, even though we never do cardio <laughs> yeah. in our normal program. Like people just feel like they have to do something. And I'm like, but you know, if you just like really intentionally rested and enjoyed some time with your family and, you know, do fun leisure time activities, we're probably not going to take that many steps back. But like, will the next four months of our training be more effective because you feel totally rejuvenated? It's very possible, right? And so I, I do think that when you are effectively matching the tool to what you're trying to accomplish, I think it can pay off in bigger ways than you think. Because like, you know, if you're taking a bunch of deloads you don't need, of course, you're missing out on training opportunities. But the other side is true as well. If you're just forcing yourself to do boring crap, during a vacation because it's something, I do wonder how much that chips away at a person's enthusiasm for their training in a way that carries over for weeks and even months afterwards. So yeah, I think it's it's worthwhile to be really intentional about what you're doing. And that doesn't always mean choosing the hardest thing possible. Yeah, I think that's really well stated, like meeting the client where they're at and actually being like, they're like coach, like, so what's the training on holiday? It's like, do you feel like you need to train on holiday because uh, do you think you're going to enjoy that? And like, actually what's going to be fun for you. And cause I think a lot of people come to us cause they're like, they think they should be doing certain things like going for a run cause they have to exercise or something. It's like, Hey, take your week off is totally legit and fine. And it's often thinking about what's the next step of that. The upside of, I think that's the same for deload. Some people don't like taking the deload, but it's like, Hey, what's the long-term upside of that? If you need that tool at that time and it's appropriate, there's a lot of upsides in future. So yeah, I think that's really well explained. Yeah, but you, you do learn a lot about a client uh, in the vacation situation, because like I said, every now and then I will have a client 
and I'm not like a smart ass about it, but I'll, I'll have a client who is like a power lifter, right? And we never do like, I'm not saying I never have power lifters do cardio, but like in this situation, this kind of scenario, it's like, I'm working with someone, I have never told them to do cardio in the entirety of our coach client relationship. And they're like, okay, I'm going on vacation, but don't worry, I'm gonna run on the beach every morning. And I'm like, <laughs> what's what's underneath that? Yeah, you yeah. know, like psychologically, like why do you feel an obligation to do some exercise, even though that has nothing to do with what we've been doing or the goal we're working toward? And it's not that I discourage them from doing that. Sometimes they just say, I just love a good run on the beach. Great, do it. But but sometimes you do find that you, you kind of uncover. It's like, I feel like a lot of your feelings toward exercise result from a sense of obligation. And that can be a really uh, a really informative observation that you can kind of work on addressing in the future. So like you kind of help someone say, remember, we're doing this because we're passionate about it and we love it and we're working toward goals. We're not obligated to do some unit of exercise just because it's a new day, you know, and that, yeah. that can be a helpful conversation that that pays off in the future. Yeah, I, I've totally seen those sort of relationships with not just exercise, but also the nutritional component too, in terms of like, that's a whole nother conversation in terms of how they approach their nutrition on holiday. And I'm probably similar to you, I would imagine I'm trying to get someone where it's always complimentary, almost the nutrition training, whatever they're doing, it's not a stressful event for them. It's something that they're choosing to do. It's not that they feel like they have to train or they have to exercise or the nutrition is controlling them and their decision making. It's like, hey, they have ownership over that. And overall, it's a stress free or low stress kind of decision that they're making at certain times. Yeah, I, I think it's a great uh, kind of example is like uh, Eric Helms and me, very different people, uh, very similar, but very different. And so like, I know when he travels, he wants to train because it's fun for him to train in a new environment, a new gym. Maybe he's visiting someone. He's oh, I'd love to get a workout in with them, right? He loves to train when he travels. I actually don't. I, I prefer if I'm traveling, I prefer to do almost anything but train, uh, assuming it's a short enough trip. If I'm gonna be gone for eight weeks, I'll I'll get a you know a gym membership or whatever. But um very, very different people and and it would be a shame to tell him not to train when he travels because for him it's fun. But if for me, if someone was coaching both of us, if they like twisted my arm and said, you know, you have to go in and train when you're traveling, that wouldn't really be the right call for me as a client. Um, and then there's kind of the third, well, there's many options, but a third common option is someone who wants to train when traveling, but because of an obligation, a sense of obligation rather than because they're like Helms and they just love it, right? And so all three of those folks need to to approach that situation very, very differently, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah I think that's really well stated. Uh, that I can even speak from personal experience. I definitely used to train from obligation on holiday. And mm -hmm. then Me too. it's become, if I can train, amazing, because I love to on holidays, but it sometimes isn't appropriate given who I'm with. Like my partner doesn't train. And sometimes that means, you know, taking hours out of the day to go and like do this thing. It's like, hey, that's not appropriate at those times I don't train it's kind of balancing those things and I think yeah you're really coming from a coach looking at the client and individualizing that not just like hey I've treat everyone the same and treating their psychology and how they are as a person yeah 
I, uh, so the, the next question I have for you, actually, uh, the final one, and I think people will be really interested in your opinion on this. I've asked so many people about it. So this is uh, the kind of evidence surrounding training at long muscle lengths. And I'm sure you've kind of looked into this, have thoughts about it. I don't know if you've experimented with any of it. I know you're speaking of Eric Helms. I know he's done quite a lot of kind of self-experimentation. Um, have you experimented with it? And do you have any kind of, yeah, what are your general thoughts surrounding that? Do you see people training with like long muscle length partials in future? How, how do you think it's going to develop? And do you have any thoughts surrounding the mechanisms behind why we might be seeing this growth? Yeah. Um, I, I've experimented with it a lot, but I mean, I did it almost intuitively when I was first getting into training. I mean, like 16 year old Eric was doing plenty of long, long length um, partial training. And I think my intuition guided me there because like, for example, um, let's say I was doing a set of bicep curls, right? And I'm 16 and I want to have huge arms. So we all know where the hardest part of a bicep curl is, right? The weight's kind of out from your center of mass. You're halfway up the curl. Can you get that rep up? Can you not? We'll see about halfway, right? And, you know, I think my my very simplistic view was, okay, I cannot do a full rep anymore, but I can do like a third of a rep. And, you know, that feels like it's doing something for me. Uh, and so like, for me, I, I think there was enough sets of doing these curls where I was like, I can't do any more full reps, but I still feel like I'm leaving a tremendous amount in the tank. Like I could still crank out like six or seven partials here, specifically at long muscle lengths. Um, and so that's what kind of first got me into it. And then later I was doing a lot of, um, you know, uh, various pressing exercises, wanted to really develop my chest. And I'm like, yeah, those full reps are fine. But man, when I'm when I'm hanging out in here, oh, man, do I feel it right? And so like I kind of just naturally got into a situation where, you know, various opportunities within a workout, I would do plenty of those half reps on my my pressing exercises, specifically the part of the range of motion where my pec is, you know, maximally stretched. So I gravitated toward those naturally because uh you can feel it, right? It's doing something. Um, it, those are absolutely brutal partials. And uh, so, yeah, for me, it was always an intuitive thing to include those when I felt like I almost kind of treated it like an intensification technique, the, the same way that someone might do a drop set or they might do various supersetting strategies to some extent or a cluster set. For me, it was like, okay, I'll do my full reps and then I'll get those nasty kind of um, partials in specifically at long muscle lengths because those ones felt like they were doing more than the partials at short muscle lengths right so I've, I've used them in the past um i don't i don't know if i would say that they are a total game changer but it's a nice way to train you you certainly will feel like you got your money's worth after the workout um i, I would say you know there there is some likelihood that there's some additional benefit there um but then we get to the question that I was hoping you wouldn't ask, but I saw it on the outline. So the mechanisms, um, I would encourage people to check out, we had a mass article, um, on, you know, these long muscle length partials, um, within the past year or so, and it was long and it talked about strength and it talked about hypertrophy and within each subsection, it talked about various mechanisms. 
And I think in the hypertrophy section, there might be perhaps up to like eight or nine possible mechanisms listed in that article. And I mean, virtually no confidence in terms of, is it, is it number one? Is it number two? Is it number two and number five? Is it none of these? I just don't think anyone really has a, a high level of confidence in what the mechanisms are in terms of why these long muscle length partials seem to be so effective. I think you can come up with many plausible explanations, uh, which is good. I think you can look at the empirical data and say, hey, these are you know very helpful. Um, and I think probably from my perspective, the sweet spot is that you're either doing all your lifting with a approximately full range of motion or you're doing a combination of full range of motion plus long length partials. I think those are both very solid ways to train if you're interested in maximal uh, and you know relatively even muscular development. I, I think you certainly don't want to be in a situation where you're just doing a bunch of short length partials and nothing else. Um, but yeah, the, the mechanisms I think still elude us. And I think there are many, when, when it comes to a training strategy or a nutrition strategy, I think the two most important things initially are number one, does it pan out? Is the empirical data good? Do people seem to grow when they do this thing? And with long length partials, the answer so far seems to be yes. You know, it seems to work. Then the question is why? And if you can create, if you can generate some plausible mechanisms, even if you don't have, you know, conclusive proof that it's one versus the other, you're usually in good shape when you have those two things in place. If you say this appears to work many times in the literature, and there are good reasons why it ought to work. I think from an applied perspective, that's usually a good enough justification to say, let's use this, you know, like, let's experiment with this, let's feel comfortable using it. Um, now, the third layer there, you know, it works, there are good valid reasons why it ought to work. The third level is, let's figure out exactly how it works. Because if we do that, there's the possibility we can make it more effective. Or perhaps we can use other strategies that do the same thing. Like, when you start to figure out how something works, it gives you maximum ability to find complementary strategies or alternative strategies that do the same thing. Or you might find instances where you say, oh, actually, this should work, but it won't work if we do that. You know, like, so for example, totally different area, but, you know, you could say, hey, when I take beetroot juice, it seems to enhance my muscular endurance, right? I'm cranking out a few extra reps. And then we say, okay, well, there's plausible mechanisms of why that would work. Great. But then we figure out why beetroot juice works. And it's because it increases, you know, it's got dietary nitrate, which increases nitrite levels, which increases nitric oxide, which seems to be the kind of driving factor there. The reason it matters to find out why specifically it works is because if you're using antibacterial mouthwash, it doesn't work anymore because you can't convert nitrate to nitrite. So like, that's like a super, uh, like 
very obvious example of why it's worthwhile to figure out why something works. Because if we find out, oh, you're you're creating nitric oxide through this, uh, you know, NOS independent pathway, nitrate to nitrite to nitric oxide, we can say, oh, maybe it makes sense to add in citrulline, which uses a totally different pathway. Or maybe it makes sense to include that with some extra antioxidants, which increase the bioavailability of nitric oxide, which has a notoriously short half-life. Or let's make sure that we're avoiding mouthwash because that will wipe out the effect entirely, right? So that's my dissertation topic. That's why I'm like, oh, let's do that example. But I, I just, I think sometimes people wonder why are scientists bothering with all this crap? You know, like, like, like we talked about earlier, if we're all just going to do eight to 12 reps yeah. anyway, why does it matter to learn about this other crap? And it's like, well, because sometimes it matters. Sometimes it's useful to say, okay, now that we understand this more deeply, we can iterate on that. We can figure out what matches well with it, what doesn't, what is a viable alternative. Um, so I do hope that folks will continue to try to drill down those mechanisms it's going to be a difficult area of research to be in like I, I don't think that there's an easy way to really elucidate exactly what that mechanism is it's going to take a lot of work uh, across many different studies i don't think you can design a study to really uh uncover that uh it's an area i'll be watching uh with interest but for now from a totally applied perspective, we at least have those first two boxes checked where I think we can feel really comfortable saying, hey, this is a good idea to, to kind of throw in the mix there. Um, is it better than doing, you know, full full range of motion training? Maybe, I, I don't know. Um, a combination of the two wouldn't hurt. But, uh, but yeah, hopefully we'll get more information about the mechanism so that we can actually figure out how to maximally leverage that because, if we let's say we uncover the mechanisms and we say oh well that should be totally uh it should be totally feasible to accomplish that exact mechanism to the same degree if you're just using full range of motion training then in that case we could say oh so what we're seeing from the you know long length partial literature is just a really extreme example of training with a full range of motion right so far there's there's evidence hinting that perhaps there's something special about it but ultimately we'll we'll have to wait and see yeah, oh, I think that's. Uh, I mean, you're ahead of ahead of the time, like doing it. But I think uh, a lot of bodybuilders. I've spoken about this with guests as well, and I think a lot of just lifters in general intuitively did a little bit of it anyway. Even if that was like, hey, well, rather than stopping your bicep curl there, you just like used a bit of momentum to like help it in that short position, like people do with rowing movements. You watch Arnie doing his like, I don't know, his cable rows, and he's using a hell of a lot of weight, but he's like jerking to help get it short or whatever. And so, yeah, it would be really interesting to see what the mechanism is there exactly. And I know some people have also posited that maybe it's even just a short-term novelty effect that the people are seeing in these studies, but because uh, none of them have been even ran that long. So uh, I think it's definitely an interesting area. And I think your kind of the position you're taking now is, seems like a very responsible one and reasonable one to be taking. Uh, at yeah. least from what I've seen, some people have spoken a little bit too strongly probably on what the proposed mechanism is, especially when I hear you've mentioned like eight different possible combinations even, and yeah. we're just nowhere near even being able to elucidate that. Yeah, but I mean, like you said, it, I do I do find it interesting that um, so far the, the data do seem to be promising. Like one of the things, just so that I don't like totally um, – punt on the question and offer up nothing. I think one thing that's interesting is the concept of regional hypertrophy. 
um, you know, the idea that if we are doing just short length partials, perhaps we're seeing preferential hypertrophy in the proximal region uh, of a muscle. And if we're doing kind of more longer length stuff, perhaps we're getting more growth specifically in the distal region of the muscle. I think that's an interesting idea. Um, and so that's one of the things that comes to mind, but you know, then, then you start to wonder, well, maybe is there something special about long length partials because we're able to do more of that long length training when we do those partials instead of doing a full range of motion every single repetition. You know, like like I said, back to that intuitive thing I was doing when I was like 15 and just wanted huge arms. It's like, well, I can't do full reps anymore, but I can do long length partials and get a little more volume in, perhaps that is kind of preferentially getting some extra growth for that uh, that distal region of the muscle. That's one idea. So I, I don't want to come out too forcefully and say, oh, partials are just definitely replicating what we already get with long or with full range of motion training. I can't say that for sure. Um, so I think it's interesting. But the, the point I was going to make before I went off on that tangent is, like you were saying, I, I think it's really fascinating when research leads us toward things that folks had been doing very intuitively. Like, everyone when they first started benching realized, ooh, these these partials with the bar close to my chest are nasty, right? Another thing that people like to do, and this is a a, a combination of two topics really, but you know, the, the, the heavy negatives, right? Like when people were like, well, I can't really do this much weight for like a normal repetition, but I can do a negative with it. And that gets you into the concentric versus eccentric you know, th those are mechanistically different. So it, it, it's a confounding factor. But at the same time, a lot of times when you're doing those partials, what you're able to do is specifically really overload the muscle in a lengthened position. And everyone since I was like 15 years old was saying, oh, these these negatives are nasty. And it's nasty for many reasons. It's eccentric rather than concentric. We can usually overload with a, a, a bigger weight on the you know a heavier load than we could actually lift for normal repetition so there's multiple factors at play but it does seem to be a, a kind of a um a very intuitive observation that doing hard stuff with the muscle in a long position is nasty and uh maybe there's something to it i will say at least just quickly anecdotally for me i don't know if you've uh, experimented with calves just because there's so many like calf research coming out that's where a lot of the kind of long muscle length research has been and also just stretching but i've been doing calf partials just solely calf partials for like the last year basically and i swear they've grown like at least those like short-term proxies in terms of like the pump that kind of sensation of like disruption a little bit of soreness within them like i i swear it just and like that short position in that calf raise like when you're doing a straight leg calf raise it's so much harder than the rest um but yeah anyway that's just one of my anecdotes i'd add <laughs> oh yeah and like calves i mean i feel like with calves since i started doing them for better or for worse it's one of those things i'd always try to control it right you don't want to get you don't want to be doing achilles raises you want to be doing calf raises you know just get you don't want to get just all elastic energy there but man i don't know if i've ever really ended a calf set when i could no longer do a full concentric repetition right i mean you're doing calves you might as well go for it right you can't you can't get a full repetition anymore do those partials you know keep building up that that pump there i mean yeah it's and sometimes even with the calf i would i would do my full reps i'd get some partials as as 
as much of a range of motion as I could get. And then I, sometimes I just leave a nasty loaded stretch at the end of that set. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you there. I, I think I feel like uh, it's been a particularly effective way to train calves. And uh, I'm excited to see where the the long length partial stuff is is going to go, because if it if it ends up being something that's complementary to full range of motion training, that that's really fantastic. It gives us another another tool that we can use. Do you think it could go as far to being the way to train everything? So some people, uh, Milo Wolf, who's been one of the kind of foremost kind of people talking about this, he's doing doing all of his training at long muscle lengths. And I, I don't know if he's part of his research study, if he is or not, but I think he'd been doing it before that anyway. And he's got a research study where they're doing like a, many people doing just full partials and then the other, well, full partials, partials along muscle lengths and then full range of motion, like, and they're going to compare at the end. I think that study is currently being uh, underway. Do you think there could be a time where people just decide, hey, I'm just going to do like all my bench and pulsing, like my kind of pulling, I'm just coming the first 50%. Do you think full range of motion could just die out? I, I guess it's a policy. I can't, I know your answer is going to be it's a possibility, I would have thought, but <laughs> maybe it's not. <laughs> I am skeptical that full range of motion training is going to die out because like one of the things that comes to mind is much of my training involves uh, multi-joint movements and, you know, it's easy enough to say, for example, for calf raises or for bicep curls, you know, oh, just do the long part of the range of motion. But like, you know, if you think about, you know, pulling a row deep into your, you know, all the way in the muscles that, you know, that it, it feels distinctly different at various parts of that range of motion, right? Where, where you're getting different muscles that are kind of contributing at different, different regions, uh, lat pull down. Like when you think about these multi-joint movements, I think, um, I think a lot of people are going to end up gravitating toward full range of motion just to make sure that they're getting really, um, you know, really uniform, comprehensive muscle growth and kind of tapping into the maximal potential of that, of that movement. Um, I also, I, I am curious. I mean, listen, Milo knows more about, knows infinitely more about long length partials and short length partials than I do. I mean, that's his like dissertation topic. He, definitely better know a lot more than I do about it. So um, like I'm in no position to, to kind of write that idea off entirely if, if that's the position uh, that he takes. Um, yeah, and, and Milo Sharp, I mean, he's, he's a smart guy. I, I really like Milo and, and uh, have a tremendous amount of respect for his work and his ideas. Um, but, you know, for me personally, I think it would take a lot of very compelling evidence to convince me that that I you know, should ditch full range of motion training entirely, particularly when it comes to those kind of multi-joint movements that involve a lot of different muscles along the way. Um, but, you know, hey, if uh, if it turns out to be effective in, in that research, I think that's, I think that's great. You know, like uh, it, it could, it could get to that, that it, it could open up a possibility if it pans out where people have yet another way to train effectively. And so, for example, what I'm thinking about is folks who, for whatever reason, have a limitation on range of motion and might say, might be really discouraged by that and say, well, 
you know, I have this injury and there's not really a good prognosis for it to get better. And it really limits my ability to, to do these full ranges of motion. If they're able to do these long length partials, you know, I, I think that'd be fantastic. And like, you know, I used to, um, for about six years, I think five or six years, I coached a special Olympics powerlifting team. And, you know, we had, you know, with powerlifting, the range of motion is what it is. It, it's literally in the rules. But when it comes to accessory work, you know, we had a, a lot of folks on our team who had various um, uh, motor limitations where some exercises we just couldn't do in a full range of motion. It just it wouldn't have been doable, wouldn't have been safe, wouldn't have been comfortable, et cetera. And so like when when you work with specialized populations where you need to do a lot of accommodation for the way exercises are done, that type of research, I think, makes me really excited. And, and I very much hope, you know, if, if we find that you can get the same or better effects from doing part of a lift instead of the whole lift, I think that'd be terrific for a lot of different reasons. And a lot of folks who are dealing with injury, mobility impairment, all sorts of things that limit what they can currently do in terms of range of motion. Um, like I said, it, I, I would be surprised personally based on the data I've seen if doing just full or just long length partials is considerably better than doing full range of motion training. But I've been wrong before. I, I fear it may happen again at some point in my life and that could be it. Who knows? No, I think that's that's absolutely fair enough. And I think similar to like the rep range kind of discussion where it's like, hey, maybe someone, they can train in the 30 rep range, like 30 reps and that's pain-free for them. Similar with this range of motion, it's like using tools in your toolbox and that's where science can be beneficial. Again, it might be similar that the data is a wash and it's like, hey, full ROM was like where most people land because that's practically probably the most applicable, I think. And that's where most coaches tend to recommend that in the first place. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm here for, I'm kind of excited by it because there's not that much exciting stuff coming out in that sort of space. Like it's a bit different, it's a bit of something to experiment with. So that's been at least fun. And yeah, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been a really, really great discussion and chat here. Uh, if people want to keep up with everything that you're doing, is there any, is there anything, I think you've got a new website. Is that new or you've got a website now? At least I didn't, I don't remember seeing it. So at least that's yeah. something to plug. Yeah. So there are ways to find me, uh, mass research. Yeah. Mass is one way to find me. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Trexler fitness and, uh, yes. So I have a website that I soft launched with the softest of launches. It's, there's still some things I want to do to it before I say like, Hey, everyone come, you know, flock to my website. Too There's late. a few things I want to do and I just haven't been able to carve out the time to do it, but trexlerfitness.com, it exists. It looks good, but I need to get more content in there. And, uh, but yeah, so like if you really want to get in touch with me and you don't have Instagram, for example, um, you could go to trexlerfitness.com and there's a little contact me tab. You you can send a message to me. Um, tell me how wrong I am about everything <laughs> I said on this podcast. But yeah, trexlerfitness.com exists. And uh, I, I definitely hope to be uh, kind of putting more time and effort to that uh, in the future for sure. Well, it, it did look decent when I looked over it. So uh, yeah, you've got you. not, not that much time on your hands anyway. So I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> the, the one thing about my website, it's not broken. 
So yeah, that's, that, that's uh, the reviews are positive in that regard. It, yeah, it looks fine. I just I haven't been able to like really um, get all the content in it that I want in it. You know, I, I want to make sure when it when I start telling people, hey, go to trexlerfitness.com. I want there to be a certain amount of content in there that is like ready to go. So people are really saying, hey, I'm, I'm glad I stopped by today. So I'm, I'm still getting some of that content in there. And uh, but for now, it looks pretty. And if you like the color green, you're going to like it. Fantastic. Thank you, Eric. And thank you guys for listening. Take care. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicup so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.